as we're continuing in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've bogged down a little bit here in chapter 13, but it's just such important stuff. I felt like going in-depth in chapter 13 was important, especially as I, in studying it, looking at those first three verses that were saying how unless you get this, unless you really understand love and how love flows through you, then nothing else that you do matters. Your whole life can amount to a big zero without love. Everything that you say can just sound like a symbol clanging without love. And so as a result, I felt like, okay, let's slow it down and look a, a bit at, as Paul talks about love specifically, mostly what we've been seeing him do after he said how important love is, mostly he's emphasizing what love isn't. A lot of it has been showing that there are certain kinds of behavior that often we would call love, and yet he says, no, that's not what love is, that's not what it does. Now again, I reiterate, it's not a question of whether you're loving or not. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you have love. But his point is, unless love shows, it doesn't do any good. Love, while it's inside you, doesn't make a difference. You can feel all the passion you want, but if others don't see that love, then it doesn't accomplish anything. And so much of what he's doing is showing the outward image of Here's what doesn't look like love. Here's what stands in the way of love. Here's what quenches our attempts at expressing love. And so we've come to verse 6 this morning, 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, it's not too surprising that when you're winding up your discussion on love, he would get to this topic of rejoicing or joy. Joy and love are really inextricable. When Paul describes for the Galatians the fruit of the Spirit, and he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then he rattles off a list of traits that are a part of love or are the outward manifestations of love, and we often think, oh, fruits of the Spirit, but no, it's just the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he says, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. All of those are descriptive terms of love. And so joy is certainly something that you expect to see in conjunction with love. Oh, you, you notice it when you see someone who's fallen in love. All of a sudden, they see the world differently. They seem to have a joy and an excitement, a, a happiness that maybe wasn't there before. And we often say, and, and, and really sometimes naively, we think because we're in love, we're just always going to be happy. And it's not always that easy, but certainly joy is something that you would expect would flow forth out of love. If someone is saying that they love you, but they're saying it in an angry way, if someone's saying they love you, but they're just miserable, it's hard to see that love. It's hard to say at the one point, I love you, and at the same time, have this look on your face that says, but you make me miserable. 
<laughs> but I'm bummed when I'm around you. The thing that lets us, when we see little kids, the, the love that they so freely show is partly shown by when they see us, they get happy. If you've been away, dogs are even better at it than kids. <laughs> but, you know, you come home and it's like, woohoo, you can make the place happy just by you <coughs> entering. You can get there, and if you know that you're loved, when you walk in, it's going to be, oh, you know, excitement and love. And, you know, other people, the way when we leave a room, as soon as we close the door, we hear happiness behind us, you know? So <laughs> you can either bring joy to a room by entering it or leaving it, depending on how loving of a person you are, most likely. So love and joy fit together. We know that when we love, we ought to be happy, and as a result, these things are connected. But notice what Paul says here. He sets up kind of an odd coupling, really, because for us to say that love rejoices is one thing, and, and that's certainly a true statement, love rejoices. But it's how love rejoices and where love rejoices that is the point that he's making here. And he says, Love rejoices, doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in or literally with the truth. Iniquity and truth are kind of a funny pair of words to put together in contrast. Iniquity is a word that means to do what isn't right, to sin, to do something that's unfair or unjust. It was a legal term that they used. But, you know, if I'm looking at iniquity, I know that that's bad. Now, if I'm going to come up with the opposite of it, I would probably say iniquity and righteousness, sin and goodness, and, and that kind of a thing. But he puts iniquity in conjunction with truth. Now, if I'm coming up with a contrast to truth, I wouldn't usually say it's either true or it's iniquity. Because usually in my mind, I don't go there immediately with the idea that truth and sin are opposites. Truth and iniquity are opposites. But Paul is doing this and making a really powerful point, I think, as he does. And it gives us a, a clue as to the nature of iniquity, the nature of sin. See, ultimately, sin is always a rejection of truth. God tells us the truth. Jesus said, my word is truth. He, he wants us, he said, the truth will set you free. Facing reality is what God always wants us to do. But what sin is, is finding a shortcut to avoid what reality involves. So sin is saying, okay, here's the truth. Lie to me. Let me find some short way to get where I'm going that seems like it'll lead me to joy. Sin is always short-circuiting the process so that you can find joy in a way that's more convenient, more comfortable, less threatening than the real way to achieve joy. In the beginning, God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Eden. That blows this service for the tape. <laughs> it just flows when you say garden. 
the Garden of Eden. And as Adam and Eve were there, they had everything they needed. They were taken care of and blessed incredibly. But there was one tree they weren't supposed to eat of. Satan came to Eve and said, how bad could it be? Look, that tree is actually going to make you wise, and it tastes so good. It's so satisfying. Everything that you're wanting in your life will be given to you if you eat that fruit. And so rather than receive from God whatever God wanted, rather than to get the wisdom as he taught them, as they would spend time with him every day and he would teach them other things, Satan presented this fruit as a shortcut to a relationship with God, a growing, learning relationship with God. And they fell into it and it destroyed them. It actually circumvented all that God wanted to do in their lives, and all of human history since then is the story of God trying to fix the damage that was done when Eve and then Adam took a shortcut to joy, took a shortcut to satisfaction. And ever since then, there are things that God tells us in his word that are the best ways to live. There are things that he tells us about that are, that are ultimately, he says, going to lead to our fulfillment. But at the same time, the devil is still there putting out little alternatives that look like they work even better. You know, that's what Satan did to Jesus ultimately when he tempted him, and he does it to us. Think about everything you can think of that involves sin. And, I, and think of how people get trapped in their sin attempting to to find joy. I mean, one great area where this happens is in the area of people who who drink or use drugs in order to try to find some sense of happiness and relief and a a lessening, a deadening of their pain. Those sorts of artificial stimuli that the Bible forbids are so often just a shortcut Life is long and hard sometimes, and it can get tedious. And yet here is something in a bottle, here is something in a syringe, here is something in a glass that looks like it's going to help. And the funny thing is, it can make you happier for a little while. It can provide an element of relief. But what a lie it is, because look what ultimately results from it. Look where it leads. Look at the life that is ultimately created by someone who tries to short-circuit life by cutting corners and artificially providing for themselves joy that, yeah, God wants us to have joy. He wants us to be happy, but he has a path to get us there. And if we short-circuit it, That's what's called sin. It doesn't work well at all, but somehow we think it will. Think of people who, well, look at marriages. Marriage is difficult. Here you're with a person who's different than you are, and you're put together, and ultimately there's this plan. The two of you are one. You're to fit together. You're to help and support each other. The the picture of what marriage is designed to be is, is a beautiful picture. But it takes time to get there. It takes time to grow together. And so often what we do in our marriages is we go, you know, I'm going to have a shortcut. 
Because I can look at my spouse and I can pretty much, you know, after you're married to somebody for just a few months, you can pretty much tell everything that's wrong with that person. You can make a list. You could go, you know what? I could list five things. And if I could change them about you, things would be so much better. And so what God would say is, love your spouse, even when they are acting that way. And let me work in their life. Let me work on them. Let me develop them. But what we want to do is go, God, I I got this one figured out. And I know if I just explain enough times what's wrong with this person, we can fix what's wrong and we can get happier a lot sooner. Yeah, God's saying, no, down the road, if you stick with me, there's going to be joy that's unbelievable. There's going to be a relationship that's so rich and so full, but we go, nope, I don't want to treat you in that way. It's not worth it. I am going to pester you into fixing yourself, and then we'll get there a lot sooner. It's a shortcut. It's a sin. We do the same things when we're impatient with our kids. We do the same things at work. In every way, when we act like God tells us not to act, when we fall into that kind of iniquity, what we're doing is taking a shortcut to getting where we think we want to be, and shortcuts never work. There are people who, well, God says, if you want to be successful, if you want to to have enough, then what you need to do is work hard for it. You dig in and you work really hard, and you will end up earning a certain standard of living, a certain amount of possessions, and a certain security that comes from working hard. But what we find out is every day when you work hard, it doesn't necessarily pay off. Sometimes when you're working hard, it's just not working very well. And so it's very easy to convince yourself to compromise in some way because I see a shortcut. I see a way to get where I'm going. God wants me to have enough. God wants me to be happy. If I just cheat a little bit, if I just bend the rules a little bit, if I compromise in this way or in that way, then I can have what I know God wants to give me anyway. And what I do, I sin, I opt for iniquity. Rather than to face the truth of what life is, that sometimes you have good days and bad days, but ultimately, if you're consistent, God's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you, and you'll be able to look yourself in the mirror and and not feel horrible because of what you sold out in order to get what it is that you want. Today, there are so many of these iniquitous shortcuts And everyone's offering, here's the fix. Here's what's going to make you feel better. Uh, Examples of it are things like pornography. See, having a real relationship with a real person is a lot of work. It's really difficult. It's well worth it. But, hey, pornography can provide what you think you want in a way that's instantaneous. And so people are opting for a relationship that's a complete lie, a relationship with something or someone that doesn't even exist, a relationship with a computer instead of a person, because it just seems like less trouble. It just seems like a way to get where you're going without having to pay the price. And every sin, everything that's 
would be categorized as iniquity is always a shortcut to joy. That's why we sin, because we want joy and we don't want to pay the price for that joy. Now, on the other hand, Jesus wants us to see the truth and to live in the truth and to live in reality and to understand that what he says is something that we can trust and depend on, that ultimately it will be worth it to do things his way. But he also lets us know it's not going to be easy getting there. He just says it's just going to be worth it. And Jesus is the perfect example of that. Because Jesus came to earth to save us, to fix what was wrong with us. He came because he loved us. Now, right in the beginning of his ministry, Satan took him up into the desert and showed him all the world. And he goes, hey, you want the world? Well, of course he did. He goes, I'll just give them to you if you bow down to me. And it was tempting because that was much easier than what God had in mind for Jesus to do. And so here's the temptation as Jesus is looking and going, there's a shortcut, and I know the path of truth is one that's much more difficult, but he had to choose to defer his gratification in order to do it right, in order to ultimately enter into the fulfilling life of joy that he's provided for all of us because of his forgiving our sins. Now, what was he thinking and how did he make it through that? He was thinking of us. See, over in Hebrews chapter 12, after the author of Hebrews goes through the hall of faith, it says, you know, you've got all these witnesses, you've got all these examples, and he says, now let's lay aside all the sin and the weight that so easily besets us, and let's run with endurance patience, the race that's set before us. Let's realize this is we're in this for the long haul. We're not in it for the short run. And then he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. So he said, when we are in a long, hard race, the race for truth, the race to do what's right, the race to get where God is taking us in the way that he wants to take us, let's look at the example of Jesus. He knew that there was a joy down the road. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The challenge for us is let's not stop short of what God has for us because it looks easier to take another path. It looks easier to sell out. Jesus was able to endure just unimaginable agony because of the eternal joy that would result from it. Jesus tried to prepare his disciples for this as well. When he began to talk to them about the fact that he was going to have to die, he, you know, it was, it was really depressing for them. And they even, Peter told them, nah, you're not, that's not, you're, that's not right. You're wrong. But Jesus, in preparing them, in trying to minister to them, as he spoke to them, look at John chapter 16. Because Jesus says some, there's some important insights here about joy that fits with what we're discussing 
John chapter 16, he's talking about them wrestling with the fact that, you know, in verse 19, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I'll see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus said, look at it like this. When a woman is having a child, it hurts. And she knows it hurts. And it's difficult and you're in agony and you may be crying even as no doubt yesterday as, as Eddie and Sally were getting ready for birth. Sally was due a week ago. And, oh, it's just miserable waiting and wondering, when is this going to happen? But as he says, once you have that birth, you forget all about the pain that was involved because you're holding this baby in your arms. You're, you're experiencing this joy that's going to last because it was so worth what you went through. It just seems like it wasn't that long compared to now the joy of having this new life as a, as a part of you and, and all the experiences and the relationships and everything that are going to result from that. Jesus said, it's kind of the same way. I am going through something that's going to be painful for me. And I'm going through something that's going to be really painful for you. But when you see me alive, when you see what happens, when you understand that salvation will be purchased by what I do, you'll have a joy that's unimaginable. You'll have a joy that's just wild. And that joy is worth the pain. It's worth the suffering. It's worth putting off the immediate satisfaction that comes from temporary joy in order to have a joy that lasts if you hang in there and do what's right and you don't compromise. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday. That's the day just a few days before Jesus would die, a week before he rose from the dead. And we celebrate that time when he was presented to the people as the Messiah it was a big day. It was a great day for the disciples, certainly. The most, the most enjoyable day that they had had. As now the day had come, Jesus was going to be presented as the Messiah. And they got a donkey. Well, turn over to Luke chapter 19. Jesus got on a donkey, and he was coming over the Mount of Olives to head down toward the east gate of Jerusalem. And it says that he got on the donkey, and uh, 
in verse 35, they threw their own clothes on the colt. They set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. The other gospels tell us they put palm branches on the road and waved them as well. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees began to rebuke him. But Jesus did a funny thing in the middle of this celebration as the people were proclaiming him to be the Messiah. The other gospels tell us they were saying, Hosanna, which means save now. They were like, this is our big moment. And it was their big moment, just not in a way they realized. This day had been prophesied before by, by the prophet Daniel, as he said, from the day that there's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, this was when they were still in captivity in Babylon. He said, you can count There'll be 69 sevens, and that is enough, enough years. If you translate it into their years, it's 173,880 days. You can count the days, and then the Messiah, the Prince, will come. And, and that was the exact day that Jesus came riding on the donkey, heading in. Wow, what a big event. What a great day. What a fulfillment of prophecy. But if you read the whole prophecy of Daniel, it says, but he'll be cut off, but not for himself. See, Jesus had to come, and he was the Messiah, but ultimately what he was heading to Jerusalem for was not just a party or a celebration. These people were going to save now, but they didn't understand what it would take for him to save now. Now again, you see Jesus' reaction the people are having the time of their lives, but verse 41 here of Luke 19, now as he drew near, he saw the city, Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, man, if you knew what it was going to take, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said, I see you rejoicing, and I am the Messiah, and I, I deserve what you're saying, but you guys are missing out on something. Because what it's going to cost me to give you real joy, lasting joy, it's going to be really painful. I'm going to Jerusalem, but it's not going to be in a victorious march. I'm heading for the little hill on the opposite side of Jerusalem where I will be nailed to a cross for you, or I will die for you. And they didn't want to hear it. They couldn't understand it because they really didn't want to know the truth. That was the truth. That's what it would take for him to be enthroned. That's what it would take for us to have fellowship eternally with God would be for the cross to happen. And Jesus understood what he was thinking of 
was all of us, all of the people that would be saved by him enduring as he truly, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So as Isaiah said, when Jesus was, took our sins upon himself, that he would see his seed. He would look down through the ages and see what would happen. And he would see, the Father would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, for by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he will bear their iniquities. See, he looked at it from the big picture. He looked at it long term. And he said, I am willing to do what I have to do in order to accomplish your eternal joy. I will pay the price for joy. I will not take a shortcut by selling out to Satan. I will not take a shortcut by just going back to heaven without going by way of the cross. Jesus faced the truth full on, full force, and he was willing to go through pain to see the eternal joy that was there on the other side. And so it's the same thing with us. We have to decide. We can live our lives looking for shortcuts. We can live our lives trying to find the path of least resistance That path will be a path of all kinds of iniquity. That path will be a road whereby you just do whatever you want to do that looks like it's going to work, and it doesn't really matter whether it's going along with what God tells us to do or not. Hey, if you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, ah, there's an easier way. Just dump her and try again. Get another one. Eventually, maybe you'll find someone who is really worth, she's a keeper. That's what the world would say. The Lord would say, whatever suffering you need to go through in order to be the person that I've called you to be, it's going to be so worth it when it's all over. Don't look for shortcuts. Deal with the truth. Face reality and say, if my choice is between iniquity and truth, I'm choosing truth. And I'm understanding and believing that ultimately that will result in real joy. I don't want artificial joy. I don't want something that seems like it'll work best at the time. I am going to face the truth, and I am going to obey God, and I am going to trust Him that on that long road, at the end, lies joy. And I'm willing to to pay that price. And you know, a lot of times that joy is a lot closer than we think. Sometimes it's just past where we took the detour, the shortcut. If you just hang in there a little longer, that joy might be there. But the question is, are you just willing to do it? Because what love does is love rejects getting joy by way of iniquity. Love says, I am going to find my joy By obedience, I'm going to find my joy for real. I'm going to find my joy by facing the truth and walking in the truth. A lot of opportunities, a lot of lies, a lot of shortcuts lie in our path. Today, as I was driving to church, well, yesterday, my check engine light came on in my car. And I thought, that eh, probably didn't mean anything, but I knew I was due for an oil change, so I went in and spent like four hours waiting. To, you know, they were doing all these little things, and 
The check engine light was still on, but they assured me that everything seems fine. It's probably some little sensor or something. You have to go take it to Toyota, and they'll tell you what it is. But it's no big deal. Your car's running fine. So I was okay with that. So I started driving to church, and car's running great. And, you know, my fuel light comes on. And I'm like, okay, I think I have enough gas to get to church, but I'm not going to be stupid. I'm going to stop and get gas. So I stopped and gassed up. Everything was cool. Check engine light's still on, though. So now I'm, I get on the toll road to come up over the 73, and all of a sudden, the car starts doing weird. It starts going, thunk, thunk, thunk. And then I go, what was that? Oh, no, it's, it's, it's fine. I kept driving, you know, it does it again. And now I have a decision to make. I can either see if I can get to the top of the toll road and coast to church, or I can go, you know what, I think I better face it. Check engine means my engine needs to be checked. But there were these two voices. You know, one of them is going, don't worry, it's a Toyota, it'll be fine. The other voice is going, yeah, it's a Toyota with 127,000 miles on it. Oh, no, that's nothing on a Toyota. That's, and I'm going back, and, and my car's like, ugh. And so thankfully, I was able to get off the road, and Kenny came and picked me up, and I made it to church before worship was over, first service. But isn't that the way life is a lot of times? Sometimes we're going through life, and we're reading the Word, and God convicts us. There's something that's not right. There's something wrong here. And we actually sometimes feel better after we go, yeah, it's true. And we say, oh, well, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to be better now. I'm going to work harder now. I'm going to, you know, Monday I'll take it to the dealer. And then things start to go much more wrong, and we either face the truth or we just push it and run it into the ground. And that's so often the way we live our lives. Real love says, go the distance. Real love says, pay the price. Real love says, I want to deal with the truth. I'm through lying to cover my sin. I'm through choosing sin as opposed to truth because it just seems easier. I want to come clean. The truth is the only thing that will set you free. Everything other than truth is trapping you. Is, it, it becomes an addiction, whether you identify it as that or not. Our choice to either live in truth or to live in iniquity is the most critical decision that we make of our lives, and we make that choice every day, many, many times during the day. If you want real joy, if you want real love, pay the price. Do what's right. Obey God. Be willing to wait and be patient. And know that ultimately, he's going to make it worth your while. He is going to give you a joy that you could never get through any sell-out shortcut means. Go the distance leads to glory. And that's the message of the gospel. And that's the message that he challenges us today with about love. Love, it doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices with the truth. It deals with reality. Because 
The truth is good news. It's not, okay, face the truth. No, it, you know, if, if that's the way you feel, you don't know God very well. The truth is he's going to bless your life amazingly if you'll just start facing the truth and accepting it. It doesn't mean a life of misery. It may mean a period of time of misery because that's the path that goes where you're going, where God wants to take you. If there are two roads and one of them's all bumpy and the other's really smooth, which road depends on where you're going? If the smooth road doesn't go where you're going, it doesn't do you any good to take it. We know where his road leads, and it leads to real joy and fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction, blessing, heaven, eternity. But it's staying true that allows us to stay on that road. Let's stop giving in to lies. Let's not stop taking the shortcuts of iniquity. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you took that road first. You had tempting alternatives. Could have just stayed in heaven. You could have knuckled under to Satan's pressure. You could have skipped the cross. But Lord, you knew where you were going. You knew what it was going to cost to get there. And we are so thankful that you went the way of truth, not the way of compromise. Lord, help us to do the same. In our lives, maybe some of us are facing a choice today of either having an easy lie or a difficult truth. Help us to face the truth. To not take temporary joy as a substitute for eternal joy. And we thank you for showing us how, by your Spirit, may you empower us to live the lives that you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.